This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we continue with the Sermon on the Mount, which began with the spectacular beginning of the Beatitudes and continues for a couple chapters. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the ethical teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Next we'll be talking about the prayer advice that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll start by reading the rest of chapter 5, chapter 5, which begins with the Beatitudes. And what I'll do is I'll give you some of the subheads that appear in my Bible anyway, so that you can uh, maybe better digest it. And I am going to cut a little bit from it just to make it a little bit shorter. But it begins with the similes of salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It is no good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand, where it gives light to all in the house. Just so your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. Teachings about the Law Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law, until all things have taken place. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Teaching about anger. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to fiery Gehenna. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go first to be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle with your opponent quickly while on the way to court with him. Teaching about adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into Gehenna. Teaching about divorce. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Teaching about oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. 
But I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything else is from the evil one. Teaching about retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer no resistance to one who is evil. When someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, hand him your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn your back on the one who wants to borrow. Love of Enemies You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good, and makes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So, be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, wow, so that's some pretty radical stuff. Think of what it must have been like for those people to hear this the first time. You can picture them up there on the Mount of the Beatitudes that Pope Benedict described, with kind of the sparse beauty all around them and this beautiful vision of the valley and the birds chirping and everyone in a hushed voice listening to Jesus Christ up there on the mountain, maybe with a backdrop that allowed his voice to echo. They could easily imagine the kingdom of heaven that they were going to inherit by sitting there and looking all around them. And there's some really, really good stuff in there, some life-changing stuff. Did you get the piece about teachers? I never actually noticed that until reading through it this time. Teachers of falsehood are in big, big trouble, according to Jesus. But CCD teachers, or anyone else who teaches God's commandments, are praised highly. So teachers get a huge shout-out in the greatest sermon in the history of mankind. And I love the part about cutting off your right hand. Now, he obviously didn't mean this literally, and that shows just how important it is to understand how Jesus is speaking and the idioms he's using and when things should be taken literally and when they shouldn't, and that the context clues are always there in the Bible. But it also shows how serious Jesus truly is about sexual sin. Because he does this in context when he's talking about lust, and he'll also speak about chopping off your foot and your hand again, I think, when he talks about how we should not harm any of the little ones and that anyone who does deserves a millstone around their neck. So Jesus is super serious about sexual sin. Overall, this is a masterpiece of moral reasoning or moral repositioning. What I eventually want to argue here is that Jesus is trying to tell us how to form our hearts to value and love the right things. He promised again and again in the Old Testament, well, God promised again and again in the Old Testament, that he would take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, and that he would write his commandments on our very hearts. If you want to put it that way, he wants to give us righteous hearts. And I like saying it that way because I want to talk about this book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. The subhead is, 
why good people are divided by politics and religion, and it made headlines a few years back because it eventually gets around to kind of describing how liberals and conservatives see morality so totally differently from each other that both thinks the other is heinous and wrong, while both think that their friends are not heinous and not wrong. But the book starts out with some stories about how people who suffered brain injuries suddenly became very different morally. These stories come as a shock to people who believe in our own moral autonomy and freedom. But then Haidt kind of takes the reader through this remarkable experiments that he's done and presents his elephant and rider metaphor, which I will try to describe to you now. We've always thought of the brain as a mix of, on the one hand, kind of the appetites and desires and passions in us. That's the elephant, the raging elephant inside of us. On the other hand, reason and deliberation and rationality, that's the rider that we always imagined guides the elephant and makes it make the right choices and keeps it away from doing the wrong thing, except when the rider lets it have free reign. But that turns out to be not the way this actually works. In fact, the emotional part of our brain, the elephant, ends up basically doing whatever it wants. The role of the rider in our brain is to come up with moral reasons for what the elephant is doing. Our intuition based on emotions drive our actions and we basically try to rationalize them with our moral reasoning. Our moral reasoning is more like a politician getting votes for what it wants to do rather than a uh, committee deciding what's the best action to take. That said, this intuition that we have, our elephant, is not entirely selfish. The book says we have a taste for six general moral flavors. So first is sort of the care-harm flavor, where we feel and dislike seeing pain in others, and we want more kindness, gentleness, and nurture as a result. Second is fairness and cheating, where we want everyone to have their fair share, and we value reciprocal altruism, which includes our ideas of justice, rights, and autonomy. Third is loyalty and betrayal, the one-for-all, all-for-one cheerleader in us that is the source of patriotism and self-sacrifice for the group. Fourth is the authority-slash-subversion moral taste, where we want to give due respect to leaders who guide, protect, and have to act in the best interest of the group. And fifth is the sanctity slash degradation moral taste. That comes from the idea that the body is to be respected or honored, the, the body is sacred or a temple in uh, many religious understandings, and it should not be desecrated by immoral activities and contaminants. Last is the liberty oppression moral taste. It drives how we hate bullies and want people to come together in solidarity to oppose or take down any oppressor. You notice how all of these moral tastes tend to be tastes that unite mankind to seek a common good. Anyway, he found that people have a moral taste that they can't shake. Conservatives and liberals, for instance, emphasize different moral tastes. So they each fall within the six. Some will emphasize three. The others will emphasize others. And that means that they speak a moral vocabulary that's often lost on the other. Height has these fascinating experiments that he did to kind of figure this stuff out. What he would do is he would tell people stories and see how they reacted. Uh, one story was a woman finds an American flag in her closet, so she tears it up and washes the bathroom with it. 
And people have a certain reaction to that story and they can't exactly explain why. Another one was people have a favorite dog who they love and when it comes time for the dog to die, they kill him and eat him for dinner. People react very strongly against that and they can't find a good moral reasoning way to explain what's wrong with it. Another one was uh, not an experiment he did, but people could be taught to slap their friend in a skit if both people were consenting to it, but they had a really hard time slapping their father in a skit even when both people consented to it. So anyway, we have these moral tastes that we can't really get rid of. And uh, these same moral foundations he discovered exist in different cultures. They often show up in different practices because of cultural differences, but they're all there. But here's the thing. The book also shows that moral tastes can be changed. For instance, height points to the modern Western secularists who have absolutely changed their moral tastes so that we're kind of out of step with the rest of the world. He shares an acronym for the truly weird people we live with, W-E-I-R-D people, Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic people who are unusual in many ways. We are each very focused on me, myself, and I, and we're very willing to excuse strange behaviors that are often rejected by other cultures, at least if they're done in private, at least if nobody else is harmed. Other cultures worry about community and authority and the sacred, but us, not so much. But anyway, as a species, human beings are not simply selfish, and they're not locked into their moral tastes. Like I said before, Human beings seem to break out of the other humanoid creatures by being friendly, cooperative, and above all, by being religious in sort of the evolutionary sweep of history. Yes, we are selfish. We've all probably noticed that. But we also have an eye to the common good and want to do what's right by others according to our favored moral flavors. So what's remarkable to me about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is very much targeted toward only those kinds of changes that are possible, which are changes in moral flavors rather than forcing yourself to do things that are against your moral tastes. So it's not about changing our behavior like the Pharisees, trying to force ourselves to assent and follow a list of rules, but changing what our hearts value so that we'll have a moral taste for the right things. The whole thing is designed to give us, like I said, not Jonathan Haidt's righteous mind, but a righteous heart. Jesus said he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But the Pharisees work really, really hard at not ever breaking even small rules. How can we surpass them? Well, the only way you can do it is by making an end run around them. The examples Jesus gives us are kind of telling. They are each very different, but each follow the same formula. He cites the commandment, you shall not kill, then adds, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. He cites the commandment against the adultery, then adds, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He cites the commandment, do not take a false oath, then adds, but I say to you, do not swear at all. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one. In each case, he cites a commandment having to do with an exterior action, 
and follows it with a new command about an interior attitude. The formula is this. You have heard it said, don't let your behavior break these rules. I tell you, don't let your heart devalue others. Jesus is teaching us not to be careful about what we do. He's telling us to be careful about who we are. This is the very opposite of what many weird W-E-I-R-D people do. I was just listening to an Oxford lecture on literature, and it was a fascinating professor who was telling you how to apply the lessons from books to your lives. He was raised Catholic, but he kept saying, right now I don't find that any religious system quite matches with my religious understanding. Well, that's a very strange, a very weird way to put it. Our time seems to put ourselves in the driver's seat. We define what morality is, and then we look to different religions to see if they match up with what we've already decided. The Sermon on the Mount is not that. It's the opposite of that. It's an exercise in making our religious understanding conform to match with who God is. I started the podcast by talking about how the world seems like a maze to us that we're trapped in. And we always think the best way out is to find the right paths, talk to as many people, find as many truths as possible, and sift through it and figure out, well, what's the best path to take? The Sermon on the Mount is saying it's not about getting a roadmap, it's about aligning your heart with the one who is outside the maze, God, and then you'll naturally take the right paths as you go through life. You have a righteous heart that will lead you to make correct decisions. And boy, do we ever need that. Given what Jesus sets as a standard, we Christians have a huge problem on our hands. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to fiery Gehenna. Well, that means a lot of us are going to be liable to fiery Gehenna because a lot of us are saying you fool quite a lot. The New York Times reported research last year that found that 42% of Republicans and Democrats view their opposition as downright evil. That's 48.8 million Americans who think that the political party that they don't belong to is downright evil. Researchers even asked, do you ever think we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party in the public today just died? And it found that 20% of Democrats, 12.6 million Americans, and 16% of Republicans, 7.9 million Americans said yes. This rising hatred phenomenon is happening outside of politics, too. The number of people who say that they experience significant rudeness at work rose to a 62% majority recently, according to Georgetown University research. Meanwhile, many of us think we are very good Christians because we are superficially polite. We control our behavior despite thinking terrible thoughts inside. But that's not enough for Jesus. He wants us to love our neighbor for real, in our hearts, in our mind, and to speak to them based on real love, not pretend love, and not to provoke them or dodge them. If you look at Jesus' expectations for how we treat the opposite sex, it gets worse. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart, he says. I remember a lecture years ago by scripture scholar Father Francis Martin in which he observed that if you look at male and female social interactions objectively today, you will be shocked. 
Consecrated men and women who spend a lot of time in their communities report the same thing. When they come out of their same-sex environment and see men and women interacting, they see a clear sexualization in the way men and women interact in our day. They see so much that they find to be embarrassing flirtation and manipulation. It's not surprising. From sitcom banter to the Super Bowl halftime show, we're taught to view each other sexually. Jesus warns that this is not going to work. Not only should we avoid treating each other as sex objects in our actions, we shouldn't even think of each other that way. And Jesus wants real honesty also. Remember, he said, do not swear at all. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Honesty has also seen better days. The news we watch is often angertainment, which carefully selects news for our particular ideological bubble to make us cheer the good guys and to boo the bad guys that we hate. The information we read or listen to or watch is often marketing speak that tells us an ounce of truth and piles on a lot of truthful hyperbole, to use the phrase of a former president. And our presentation of our lives on social media is also often carefully curated to make a sliver of truth about us seem like the whole truth about who we are. Jesus says none of that's going to work. God wants us to respect others enough not to hate them or lust after them. And he wants us to respect ourselves enough to be 100% honest about who we are. Once we see others for who they are and see ourselves for who we are, we should be willing to do way more for them than we do currently. Some of the sayings from this passage today have become well known. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. But what often gets lost is that these extreme ways that Jesus is describing are actually the most practical ways to interact with others. Ultimately, exaggerated kindness is the only true kindness. To go the extra mile and give two cloaks, not one, is nothing more than loving other people the way you wish they would love you. You don't give yourself only part of what you need. You give yourself everything you need, plus what you'll need tomorrow. As St. Gregory the Great put it, he who does not divide with his needy neighbor what is necessary to him proves that he loves him less than himself. And it's also true that without loving your enemies, you don't truly love. If we return evil for evil, evil doesn't end, it grows. When we answer enemies with retaliation, we just join them. They don't join us. But what if we retaliate with kindness? As St. John Chrysostom puts it, fire is not put out by fire, but only by water. Only by embracing the other, only by practicing some of that exaggerated charity on them will we ever stop the cycle. And besides, if you stop being mad long enough to listen to your enemy, your enemy might be the only person willing to help you right now. Augustine says, just as the flattery of a friend can convert, so the insult of an enemy can sometimes correct. Our friends are not necessarily flatterers, but they do always want to be nice. Think of negative but potentially helpful things you have thought about to share with your friend, but then decided not to, to be polite or nice. An enemy, on the other hand, will tell you precisely what she thinks, and that often means telling you something that's true that nobody else will tell you. 
In the workplace, I've often found it hard to take the negative employees who have nothing but complaints all the time until I realized they're giving me a great source of information about stuff that nobody else is willing to say to me. Now I listen to them carefully to find out what is happening that nobody else is telling me about. Our enemies are often the only ones in our lives who are willing to be truly honest and give us unfiltered opinions of ourselves. Accepting all people as made in God's image is in fact what Jesus is talking about when he says to love. And it's what he's talking about when he says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. He means that the father is kind to all. He makes his son rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That line, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect from this reading in the Sermon on the Mount has caused a lot of trouble. It's led to Puritans who are too hard on themselves. It's led on to Puritans who are too hard on other people. It's led to people thinking that the gospel is just a hopeless ideal that isn't even supposed to be taken seriously. But what does the word perfect mean? It's clear that Jesus is not asking us to be perfect in every way that the Father is perfect, just as it is clear that he's not asking us to actually chop off our arms. God is all purity. He's the essence of being. He's perfection itself. Obviously, we can't be perfect like that. And it's true that one meaning of perfect, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is being entirely without fault or defect, flawless. There are many other definitions of perfect which do apply. They include satisfying all requirements, lacking in no essential detail, complete and unmitigated. So perfect here means perfect in the sense of a perfect set of teeth, or a perfect game for a pitcher, or a perfect dozen. That also matches with the Hebrew word for perfect, which means whole or integral. So to be perfect means to be complete, to love all people, to love not just those who are close to us, but even those who are not. It means to be perfect like the Heavenly Father, because we're all made in God's image and likeness, and we all want to be more and more like God. Adam and Eve took a shortcut to get there, but Jesus teaches us the hard way, but the right way to get there, the only way that works. When Jesus says not to be angry at people or lust after people or lie to people, he's giving a radical image of the primacy of community. We're made in the image of God, who is the Holy Trinity. We are not each an autonomous being who has to deal with other autonomous beings in order to make ourselves better versus them. Rather, our relationship with others is central to our identity. We're a community of people, which is just like the Trinity. Similarly, when Jesus says that we have to stay free from adultery, we can't even look at somebody lustfully, that it's better to lose part of our body than to sin, he's presenting another image of God. Not the image of God the three, but God the one. We aren't body, soul, and spirit, each with a different identity. We are one. When I act, the entire me acts, not just a piece of me. When I turn my attention to someone else, I can't separate their body from them and enjoy that separately. I am one. You are one. I treat myself as one. I treat you as one. Let's go back to the very beginning of our passage from the Sermon on the Mount, shall we? He begins by saying, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What does it mean that Christians are the salt of the earth? Well, salt is that thing which makes food flavorful. 
If you've eaten a steak, you don't like the steak, you put a little bit of salt on it, and suddenly you like the steak. Salt also in the ancient world was a preservative. So salt is that thing which keeps the good preserved in the world as well. So how does salt become tasteless? By blending in with what's around it. So what does it look like when Christians are no longer salt of the earth? Take the movie Silence, directed by Martin Scorsese. The movie presents examples of Catholics who either kept or renounced their faith in order to avoid persecution in Japan. The Catholics who keep the faith are these incredible witnesses to the power of God in a place that has forgotten them. And he has these unforgettable images of their deaths. Those who lose their faith become witnesses to the powerlessness of God, signs that Jesus Christ need not be taken seriously. In the film, the apostates become poor imitations of the Japanese thinkers of the day, no longer having anything powerful to offer. If salt loses its taste, says Jesus, it is no longer good for anything. We can't blend in with what's around us and still be Christians and still be who we need to be for the world. Then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And I think it could rightly be asked, if Christians are the light of the world, then why is the world so dark? And the world is very dark right now. The examples seem to get worse every day. There are crimes, wars, perversions, but we've always had these things. What's worst is the notion now that this isn't even wrong, that there is no right or wrong. As I referenced before, Pope Francis, in fact, citing Pius XII, said, the greatest sin today is that men have lost the sense of sin. When even Christians lose their sense of sin, the world becomes very dark indeed. Pope Francis said that there's a great suffering in the world today because, because of our Christian mediocrity when we lose the sense of sin. Why does our mediocrity make the world suffer? Because we are the light of the world and our failure means a mass blackout. There's a harsh modern parable that might put this in perspective. Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, paints a picture of the world in the bleakest possible situation. A nuclear or astronomical catastrophe, he doesn't really say, has literally blocked out the sun with a mist of ash, and the resulting lack of food and comfort has killed most human beings, emotionally as well as physically. In this greatly diminished world, acts of kindness are the difference between hope and misery, humanity and animality. Here's one of the dialogues between the two main characters of the book, a father and a son whose names are never given after they have met some truly terrible people in this post-apocalyptic world. The boy says, we wouldn't eat anybody, would we? His dad answers, no, of course not. Even if we were starving? We're starving now, the dad answers. You said we weren't starving, said the boy. I said we weren't dying. I didn't say we weren't starving. But we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. No matter what. No, no matter what. Because we're the good guys, yes, and we're carrying the fire and we're carrying the fire, yes. That's exactly how Jesus defines his followers. We're the good guys. We're the ones carrying the fire. We aren't the ideologues. We aren't the partisans. We're not the angry shouters. We're not the lustful ones. We are the ones who give people rest after they've been attacked and used and discarded. We are carrying the fire, the fire that says human beings are more than just that. We tend to think of the world as a competing light, 
If we picked an image, we might say that the world is a city of powerful neon lights and that we have to stand against it with our little votive candle. But that's not what Jesus says. He says the world is a place of darkness that we alone illuminate. In other words, the world is in a state of utter weakness because ultimately there's no such thing as darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. Ultimately, all that is waiting for this situation to be resolved is for us to put light in it. I love what Father James Boddicker posted on Facebook recently. He said, quote, I know a lot of my brothers and sisters are worried and frustrated at things that are happening in the world and in the church recently. But I wanted to tell you that just within my limited realm of influence, two people who had not been to confession in many, many years finally came to our Lord's mercy this weekend. Six young people, five from my parish and one from out of town, will be confirmed by me this coming weekend. A young woman who is recovering from surgery cried when the Eucharist was brought to her today because she could not attend Mass. These are little flowers I cultivated in my garden today, little victories granted here on my small patch of the Lord's campaign against hell. Then I love the way he ended this. Listen to this. Yes, what is going on in the church in places far away is important. But brothers and sisters, we are just infantrymen in a vast battle against Satan. If we run to the hilltops to try to take in the vastness of the war in order to determine what's going on, we will not only inevitably be frustrated, anxious, and discouraged, but the battles placed immediately before us will go unfought and potentially be lost. End quote. Don't be afraid. Win small victories. They will spread. Carry the fire and spread it to one person and then another and then another, and soon we will set the world on fire with Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.